Hi, and welcome back to the Institute of Performance Nutrition's We Do Science podcast. And today is episode 128. I'm on fire with all these new episodes. Um, episode 128, and today I have Dr. Fionn McSwiney. Hi, Fionn. How are you doing? Hello, Ron. Thanks for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. Now, there's all sorts of reasons um, why I think uh, we're going to have a good chat today. But before I get into this in uh, any great detail and explain why uh, I wanted to have this chat with you, which I will um, uh, give a, a sort of a sneak peek as to what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk today about the impact of ketogenic diets on athletes. Um, we're going to look at the, uh, the sort of current insights, you know, the evidence that we, uh, that we know and what we can or cannot take from that and how that might apply to the varying uh, levels of um, you know uh, application to athletes and so on that exist out there but before we get into that uh, juicy conversation could you just give us a quick bit of background about yourself Fionn and who you are and what you're up to and um, how you got into this line of work yeah um, so as I'm sure many will pick up from my accent, I'm Irish, currently living in Dublin, where I work as a postdoctoral researcher within Brendan Egan's research group. Uh, the research at the moment is examining the an acute, or not an acute, uh, a novel form of creatine and its impact on muscle health within uh, healthy males and females. Um, that's funded by Enterprise Ireland and a company in Ireland called Anabio. Um, so in addition to that, I work for myself as a nutrition consultant with pretty much uh, primarily online, but everything from, let's say, sedentary individuals right up to uh, track and field athletes. Um, and lastly, I work as a sports nutrition lecturer with Satanta College, which is an online institution that offers online courses in strength and conditioning from level eight right up to master's level. Um, so my background prior to that, um, I would have done, let's say, uh, my undergrad in sports science um, that would have been a, a four-year course at Waterford Institute of Technology um, and thereafter I would have went on to complete a four-year PhD um, supervised by Dr Lorna Doyle at Waterford Institute of Technology as well um, so that was a four-year investigation which looked at the performance and health effects of athletes primarily endurance athletes uh, consuming a low-carb high-fat ketogenic diet uh, versus, let's say, a more traditional or evidence-based, uh, carbohydrate-based diet. Um, brilliant. So, yeah. Yeah, brilliant. And also, as we were discussing off-air, you know, um, because this topic is a bit of a contentious topic that we're going to get into, I think it's worth mentioning that you yourself, you know, you, you don't have a particular angle or, or bias shall we say a obviously by virtue of your own research uh, and so on but also through your own practice and also through your own personal interests would that be fair to say uh currently no i've joined i've, I've actually let's say no uh i'm not let's say pro low carb nor am i anti-low carb i'm kind of pro evidence kind of stuck in the stuck in the middle at the moment which is i, th I think a healthy place to be for any researcher you say the magic word, Fionn, pro-evidence. And everyone that listens to my podcast will know that, you know, that's my obsession is looking at, you know, what, what evidence is in the context of sport and exercise nutrition and, you know, what constitutes as evidence that's relevant to informed practice. And, of course, that requires a great deal of contextualization because 
of the deeply nuanced field that sport and exercise nutrition is, whether we're talking about, you know, endurance athletes, which we could, you know, or strength athletes and physique and so on, but also how we would break all of those down from elite to sub elite to not elite, you know, college Olympians and, and so on. So it gets pretty complicated. And that's why I think this conversation today is a good one because when people talk about um, low carb diets or ketogenic diets, keto adaptation, fat adap- adaptation, which is a topic that I've gotten into quite a few times on, in the last few years with a, a variety of, uh, of experts, that you know, one common area that we do get into and we try and define um, is, you know, is what we mean by these terms because what happens is, is they end up being poorly translated by um, journalists or uh, members of the public or even researchers are guilty of this too as are practitioners because it is so easy to get this stuff confused and then the result is is that you know we start having this black and white view of ketogenic diets or low-carb diets where one camper you know, the low carb or keto diets is the panacea for everything known to man. And then the other lot are going, oh, you're just a bunch of bigoted, you know, crazy people. And actually, they're both right and they're both wrong. It, you know, it's very much this case of it depends. But if we dial back first to what influences these debates, which ultimately is the knowledge of ketogenic diets and the knowledge or the body of knowledge behind the emergence of this interest into low-carb diets, which fundamentally underpins all of these debates and all these topics and interests. Maybe we could maybe just quickly explore um, that and um, tie that into why you did so much research in that area in the first place, because clearly it was needed and, you know, you, you needed to contribute, you know, some novel knowledge into this area. So if we could start with that. Yeah, so as I said, I would have done my undergrad in sports science. Um, so I would have had some exposure to like exercise physiology, strength conditioning. That's everything from clinical nutrition right up to sports nutrition. But again, you, I wouldn't have been uh, properly trained as a sports nutritionist at that time. Um, I would have played uh, rugby to quite a high level. Um, and I would have been very aware of the importance of carbohydrates to my own performance. So I would have let's say, uh, had, let's say, four to five grams per kg midweek and then maybe load up in carbohydrates prior to game time. And then it was maybe in the final year of my undergraduate, I was in a sports nutrition lecture with uh, Lorna Doyle, who went on to be my supervisor. And she was discussing the idea of, oh, you know, there's, uh, how would you say, uh, athletes online who are claiming to be uh, on a low-carb diet. They're performing very well. They're all, you know, all these kind of things you hear all the time. And I was kind of like, you know, I, I heard the macronutrient split and I was just like, how on earth would that work? And like when you actually look at the literature, you're like, okay, so that was 2014. And when you actually look at the literature, there was a study done in uh, 1983 by Steve Finney et al. Um, and that was done on five cyclists. So there was a huge amount of talking going on at that time in let's say, 2014. Um, largely fueled by, let's say, lay publications a couple of years previously, and then people read the lay publications. They're compelling. They adopt the diet, and you know, they probably Twitter was invented around that time, so they're you know, very vocal about, let's say, improvements in body composition, improvements in performance, whatever the case may be. 
so at the outset um for my study one for my phd we were like right let's let's put some of these claims to into into a study and see does it work and much of the claims were oh do you know a long adaptation is necessary so we designed a 12-week dietary and training intervention to assess as best we could like going back i make many changes to the investigation but as best we could assess endurance and sprint performance in a let's say a practical manner um and that around that time that I was starting data collection, there was two more publications. There was one by Burke. Burke was this, her published on her own. Uh, it was looking at uh, low carb, high fat diets and ketogenic diets. And again, she was, as you'd imagine, very very science based. Going, look, there's been a study in by Steve Finney et al. And then there's a study by Zajac et al. But that probably wasn't even ketogenic, so we don't have much to go off. And then you had a different publication, Rethinking Fat as a Fuel, in 2015, which if people weren't already interested in ketogenic diets, they were definitely interested in thin. So roll on two to three years, and you're in 2017, and you have an array of publications, including my own, uh, looking at keto adaptation, let's call it, and let's say its impact on performance. And those, let's say the number of publications has really continued uh, through 2018-2019. So um, yeah, I suppose the literature has really developed in response to lots of lots of claims more than anything. Yeah, no, brilliant. I mean, so, uh, so there's, okay, there's lots of things I think we're going to get into here. Um, but since we're using terms like ketogenic, keto adaptation and low carb, I think just so that we're all on the same page, it would be worth just discussing what those terms actually mean and providing some sort of definition so that we have an understanding. Because as I said at the beginning, you know, that's one area where some people think they're doing ketogenic and actually they're doing low carb uh, and vice versa. So maybe you could yeah, just yeah. bring us up to speed on that. Yeah, look, it, it depends what definition you use. But generally speaking, I would look at a low carb, high fat diet, something containing 100 to 150 grams of carbohydrates. Um, moderate amount of protein and then let's say greater than 50% of energy coming in from fats and that's quite a, a popular diet in itself but what I was particularly interested in with my own research was a low carb ketogenic diet which uh, restricts carbohydrates to a greater extent and excludes more foods primarily sugary and starchy sources of carbohydrates so if you're looking at it at a kind of macronutrient split to be generally speaking depending on the definition less than 50 grams a day of carbohydrates Again, moderate protein intake um, and fat would primarily be maybe 75 to 80% of total energy. The difference between a low-carb, high-fat and a ketogenic diet would be both are associated with increase in fat oxidation, but due to the greater reduction in carbohydrate intake, uh, there is an increase in uh, ketogenesis. So uh, heptic production of ketone bodies, which then can be used as fuel uh, by the peripheral tissues um, and generally speaking if you're measuring them with, within urine or uh, within blood somewhere in the region of 0 0.5 to 3 millimolar would indicate that you're in a state of nutritional ketosis. Great and you know th these aren't just fancy terms that people get attracted to because they're fancy terms there are associated benefits with following these types of these types of protocols maybe you could just illustrate why 
someone would feel that this would have a benefit to them um, and and their performance? You know, what is the attraction to going low carb and or uh, ketogenic? Um, I suppose the initial, uh, I would just say, interest was in the idea that if you uh, were to adapt to a low ketogenic diet, you would primarily burn fats for energy. So your let's say limited stores of carbohydrates within the muscle would no longer be an issue. So you'd have a greater supply of uh, free fatty acids for the muscle and then heptic production, production of ketone bodies would, let's say, uh, fuel, fuel peripheral tissues, including the brain. So that would, let's say, allow somebody to, let's say, go longer. But as we know from even the study done in 1983 and subsequent work, um, endurance performance is limited by glucose availability, whether you are in a state of nutritional ketosis or not. Um, in addition to that, um, in, like, if, if you look at it within control settings, once protein is matched and, let's say, caloric needs are appropriate, you can see improvements in body composition, whether you consume a low-carb, a medium-carb, or a high-carb diet. But generally speaking, when somebody, either general population or an athlete, uh, goes from a carbohydrate-based diet to a ketogenic diet, they naturally increase their protein intake, um, and they, let's say, exclude lots of uh, uh, appetizing foods. So generally speaking, their caloric intake is going to decrease. So they adopt this low-carb diet, they increase their protein intake, and the whole their body composition improves um, without, let's say, the downloading my fitness pal or tracking their calories or having a formal food diary. So I think body composition and endurance will be two of the primary ones that people would adopt the diet for. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously there's a practical benefit there, um, which is enhanced by the fact that it's not immensely complicated to follow, at least no. in principle, which, no. which would be, you know, we're going to talk about the strengths and weaknesses of this and right off the bat, that's just an obvious benefit, obviously. Yeah. So it, oh yeah, it's, yeah, no, go on. Sorry, it, it, yeah. it, 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 like it, 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 it's very straightforward to follow. Um, like for like, let's say if you're following a fueling for the work required or a periodized carbohydrate model, um, it can be quite overwhelming, and you're kind of like, oh, should this session be low, low carb, moderate carb, or high carbohydrate availability? Whether's with a ketogenic diet, you're like, these are your macronutrients. Stick to them pretty much seven days a week. So it's it's quite easy to grasp. At the outset, and I suppose that's why uh, people might uh, lean lean towards it as a dietary approach. Absolutely, yes, and and obviously, as your paper discusses, and as the overwhelming sort of consensus on this topic is that, however, it is obviously more complicated than simply looking at it. That particularly when we start to look at at, at people that would justify being called an athlete. Um, which in itself warrants a bit of definition. And you've looked at that in your paper, actually, because there are all sorts of people that are getting into this, which includes um, people that are just trying to lose weight who aren't even mm -hmm. exercising particularly. You've got people who are hitting the gym maybe two, three times a week. Um, mm -hmm. And then you've got your sort of amateur, you know, uh, triathletes, uh, amateur ultra-endurance athletes where sort of participation and survival of the event is the order of the day rather than actually winning it. And then you've got the really serious characters that are trying to win everything. Um, maybe we could just delve into that a little bit in terms of 
of the definition of, of the term athlete and how that tends to get misperceived in the translational process when you know people look at this as it's something they're going to do or not do when actually they should be first asking hang on is this appropriate for me by virtue of what am i am i an athlete am i you know what what is that what, what are your thoughts on that um yeah look I, I i i completely agree um and even when when putting the paper together and um, one of the first things i done was look for definitions of uh, a well-trained athlete uh, a trained athlete, a recreationally trained athlete, um, and then even looking at, let's say, untrained people, and then kind of looked to uh, put various studies into those categories. And it, 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 it's, it's funny that you're agreeing with me, but, but during the actual re review process, I got quite a bit of pushback and saying, no, no, all of those endurance studies should be categorized together. And I was like, you, you cannot compare, let's say, this study done in well-trained individuals to these, let's say, recreationally trained individuals because not only from like a, a physical standpoint but how they perform is just there, there's absolutely no comparison like if you looked at a let's say an elite athlete and like granted there's not many elite athletes contained within scientific investigation nowadays unfortunately but like let's say they would complete a marathon in maybe two hours and five minutes or two hours and ten minutes where there's some of the recreationally trained individuals contained within these investigations they'd be looking at three and a half to four hours. And that's obviously representational of the uh, relative intensity they're completing endurance events at. So if you're well-trained or elite, you're going to be up around the 85 to 90% VO2 max. Whereas if you're competing in a marathon and then say four hours, your relative intensity is probably going to be at best 60% of your VO2 max. So comparing them within the scientific manuscript for me it, it wasn't something i was i was going to do and thankfully it was something that the the reviewers uh, ag ag agreed to go go on yeah and it i mean it's literally apples and oranges when you look at you know um the problem with simplifying people by whether they're an athlete or not that the spectrum that exists within that term of athlete is so significant and like you you quite rightly point out in the paper and you've just said you know it, you know, so what one person's view of a of a fast run is another person's slow run. I mean, you know, an elite exactly, yeah. an elite marathon runner is seriously fast. We've all well, yeah. not all of us, but a lot of us have seen. If you YouTube these these uh, these demos, you see uh, with people that are put on a treadmill and say, "Can you run as fast as Mo Farah or you know Capoche?" Yeah. Or you know that like I couldn't. I, I run a lot, and there's no way I could even. I couldn't keep that up for five k probably, let alone. But, 26 miles but for somebody untrained at home looking at let's say Mo Farah run on BBC or whatever the case may be you're like he's not even moving that quick but like when you're actually there when you're there in person you're looking at him you're like Jesus and he manages to are, smile <laughs> <laughs> exactly yeah so so, um, so but I think this is important because if we're going to look at this information and we're going to go right oh but there's published studies and it shows that there's a benefit for this that and scenario that's why it's important that we understand where this information comes from and what it actually means and, and, and its translational potential to very specific scenarios. I, you know, it, it is something you can do, but should you do it? Is it actually relevant? And I think this is what's missing in these discussions that we see on social media, particularly, but even in the research papers, is people are not contextualizing this information so that it's mm -hmm. actually relevant.
So if we dial back a little bit and look at the physiology of performance and we were to differentiate, um, for example, uh, you know, an amateur endurance athlete to an elite endurance athlete, what, you know, how would you describe those differences? You don't have to get into this in massive detail, but just to illustrate what we're talking about, what, you know, what do you think would help people understand this a little bit more? As in, as in the difference between endurance athletes, um, like yeah. again, it, it, it amateur depends. to elite, you know, they're both called endurance athletes, which is where yeah. I feel the you know the mistake it, it, is. Yeah, it it's you know it it depends on so many so things. many so many different factors like the the individual's uh, physical capabilities, but then you look at let's say what what is an endurance event? Is it a sprint triathlon? Is it 120 minutes? Is it less than three hours is it more than three hours yeah so or even a five-day um, multi-endurance event yeah exactly i was on, i was only reading up on uh reading up on that this morning and um, they're they're truly incredible athletes but yeah like there's 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 no comparison really but again it depends on on what def- definition you're looking at so well so where i'm going with this is um somebody and you refer to a fast and slow marathon runner in your in your paper mm-hmm. here. So for example, somebody who, and I, I haven't got the specific page in front of me, so I'm not going to get the numbers right there. But for example, a fast marathon runner might, might run it in, you know, sub three hours, for example, and they're going yeah. to be doing that at 70 something percent of their VO2 max. Whereas a slow marathon runner, and we say slow, they're still quite fast. Yeah. Might be three hours, 20, three hours, 30, by no means ultra elite, but you know they're still going to knock the socks off uh, a lot of people that are recreational mm-hmm. marathon runners. Yeah, um, there are slight differences in the way in which their physiology is being used, and in particular the way in which they're accessing fuel stores, mm-hmm. substrate utilization, which of course is of great interest to people that are into this topic. Yeah, so like the more let's say trained you go on the scale, the greater capacity you have to utilize carbohydrates and to sustain that over an extended period of time. So the example you were referencing there was a two hour and 43 minute marathon. Generally speaking, will be completed at 75% of your VO2 max. So like that is, that is an incredibly impressive time. But again, if you were to compare that to an elite athlete, they, 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 two hours and 43 wouldn't get them with inside the top 100. So it might be, you know, they're two hours and five minutes or two hours and 10 yeah. minutes. So, that, so their percentage of to max and their dependence on carbohydrates is absolutely paramount for them to even re- remain remain competitive. Um, and I think that's the the biggest definition between, uh, let's say, the recreationally trained and the well trained is how efficient their muscle is at utilizing yeah. carbohydrates. So. And the reason why I'm mentioning this, I think, will become more obvious to the listeners as we get into this. And the reason why I'm getting into this is because, you know, if there's one topic that has got a lot of emotion behind it mm-hmm. in terms of belief, um, which fuels the, the, the subscription to this and the, the, the adherence to it, is the fact that people just simply believe in this stuff and uh well we'll come to anecdotal reports in a minute because they do constitute a form of evidence that you know some people choose to believe in and or they do come from pretty successful athletes 
But when we, when we dial back to some of those original studies, like you mentioned Finney, for example, and there's others like Wilson and so on, um, some of which are controversial in themselves. Um, you know, what sort of numbers are involved and what sort of standard of, of athlete are we talking about from those original investigations? Uh, with, with the Finney at our paper, uh, the athletes were quite well trained. Like their VO2 max was in the late 60s. Right. Um, and, and the actual, you know, it's, it, it, it's certainly a decent VO2 max. Um, and the, the actual study design itself was was incredible and probably not something that you'd see replicated nowadays in the sense that the, the cyclists were in a laboratory for the duration of the investigation. All of their food was controlled. Um, so you know, it, was, it was highly controlled in the sense that you could get them into a state of ketosis and then sustain that over, over the, the couple of weeks that they were in there. Um, then what, what was the second example you were looking at? The, well, no, just the, the, I'm, what I'm trying to get to is, is, you know, our appreciation for how much research there actually is on this topic, um, mm-hmm. how much confidence we can, you know, take from that information given it's, well, I'll preempt it and say there's not a lot there yet. So mm-hmm. uh, b- bearing in mind, what I'm saying is, is people, people believe in this to a level that they will shout down anyone um yeah. if you tear if you dare to define them but i'm simply saying hang on we need to be a little bit more careful because we still don't know everything yet yeah and like even to go back to that like it's it's gas like going all the way back to 1983 but like a lot of people still look to that and go look there's proof uh it maintains performance and then you're kind of like well what, what let's let's have a think what what is performance and what what was actually measured during that investigation um, and like there was, there was limitations of there, let's say being an order effect, um, and there was one significant outlier within that uh, study. But the actual study itself looked at endurance capacity, and endurance capacity was measured at what was the percentage? Um, it was like less than sixty-five percent of their VO two max. So, just a couple of minutes ago, we were talking about the intensity that uh, elite marathon runners compete at, less than sixty-five percent of your VO two max. Most, most, uh, let's say, moderately trained persons would be able to sustain it for a, a very long duration of period of time. It's quite, quite low intensity. And what the investigation found was in a fasted state, um, when keto adapted, you could maintain endurance capacity, which is basically time to fatigue at a very, let's say, moderate intensity that wouldn't necessarily reflect the intensity that uh, a cyclist would be exposed to uh, certainly in the Tour de France but even in like uh, national races in in the UK or in Ireland uh, or around the world so like endurance capacity at very low intensities yes performance at high intensities hasn't hasn't really been been measured in, in cyclists I, I would say and also there I mean you know for, for me the elephant in the room on this is also the fact that there is a difference between what happens in a lab and what happens in the real world and by that I mean take cycling for example you know it's mm-hmm. it's it's not it's not done on a stationary bicycle you've got yeah. terrain you've got hills you've got wind you've got weather you've got you know competition you've got pressure um yeah. there's all sorts of stuff going on which does affect um you know the demands on the body and fuel utilization and usage and so on doesn't it it's even more psychologically tasking than just kind of sitting there stationary maintaining a moderate intensity 
And that's something I try to address within my own investigation back in uh, 2014 or 2015, was instead of looking at endurance capacity, I was like, okay, let's get uh, some, a group of endurance athletes, get them on a ketogenic diet for 12 weeks and see can they maintain a 100 kilometer time trial performance. And like in, in your head, you'd be like, oh, this is going to be great. You know, it's going to be at, at the start line, it's like going to be a gun going off. They're just going to go for it for 100 kilometers. But because they're not in a race environment, like we, we didn't assess fuel utilization during it. But if you're looking at, let's say, the REO readings or the lactate readings, it was very much a submaximal ride. They were below threshold, both the high carbon, the ketogenic group for the 100k time trial. So that was a limitation of my own research and something I always go back to and a regret I have that I didn't implement you know, the Haveman et al. paper in the noughties where it was a 100k time trial with four, 4k and 1k sprints uh, scattered throughout. And I think if you're trying to recreate at a field settings of, let's say, uh, breakaways, hill sprints, all these kinds of things, you really have to force the participants into into doing that during during an endurance event. So yeah. I, I per- personally, I'd like to see more of more publications like the Haveman paper back in the day. And that's a good point. And that's where I was going is that the reality of a, of a real world event is going to be a variety of circumstances, environmental conditions um, that the athlete will um, be dealing with, some of which will be low intensity, some of which will be high intensity, some of which will be um, increased sort of levels of aerobic, you know, capacity. Some will, you know, uh, demand more, you know, lactate buffering and blah, 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 blah. So, so the reason why this is an important consideration is because when people reflect or you use, sorry, something like some of that existing research to defend their or, or to inform their decision-making about the type of diet they're going to follow and or their fueling practices during activity. Um, what they're ignoring is the fact that these different situations are occurring, but also those challenges to their metabolism and physiology mm-hmm. will uh, change throughout the course of that event, you know, in the same way that you're, you know, you're, you're, it's like a manual gearbox. You're going through gears one through to six and you're needing to use yeah. those gears for different reasons at different times. And the question I think that comes up a lot about this research is, you know, if we're fair and say the scientific process tends to be a reductionist process. So what we do is we look very closely and narrowly at something to try and understand what's going on. We have to, uh, control that situation, um, you know, uh, to avoid anything that's going to contaminate our view of that particular mm-hmm. that particular thing, um, particularly in mechanistic research. But of course, that drives it further and further away from the real world scenario, which is full of all of those things. So mm-hmm. we just have to be mindful that we also need to bring it back and go, well, hang on, all this other stuff is going on, which, as you say, is next to impossible to actually. Um, you know, assess in field yeah. studies. Yeah. Do with with that consideration in mind, do you feel that the body of knowledge is overwhelmingly on one side? Um, uh, you know, as it relates to the to the bigger picture of this, and perhaps maybe we're we're not interpreting that right. Um, or or I mean, where else do you think the issues might be with that? 
Um, I, I, I think there's a misinterpretation of what constitutes optimal performance. And like you talked about gears there. And like, certainly I think you can sustain endurance performance in gears one to three. But there is compelling evidence, at, at, le at least in the short term, by the, let's say the Stellingworth paper in, in the noughties as well, that if you adopt a low-carb diet for, for, for three to five days, you're going to have an inhibition of PDH, which is ultimately going to limit glycolytic flux within an athlete. So if you're, let's say, competing at, let's say, in third gear at some maximal intensities, and then there's a breakaway, um, your ability to, let's say, produce energy and accelerate to the same extent of somebody, let's say, who didn't follow the same approach as you. Although there's a lack of mechanistic work done in that area, like it would be great to do more of it, but time and time again, we see uh, re reductions in uh, exercise economy at higher intensities, which would kind of point back to the Stellingworth paper, even though it's not being measured. And then you would see, let's say, uh, maintenance of performance maybe but then when you look at when you actually crunch the hard numbers you're like oh you know that was 20 minutes they were, they were 20 minutes slower when they adopted this low carb approach and although that's not statistically significant to a scientific manuscript um you know 30 30 to 60 seconds is uh, practically meaningful to an athlete um, and i think that's that's something that's that's uh, certainly overlooked so yeah. yeah, I suppose like, go on, yeah. Yeah. So the, yeah, I mean, look, I, I I'm with you on this, and and actually, I interviewed Trent about that and um, other people on this very topic, um, like John Hawley and Louise Burke, of course, but also James Morton and um, a whole bunch of others. And I think one issue that we've got is we tend to look at this from the perspective of should we or shouldn't we be keto adapted, or should we or shouldn't we be low carb or high carb and of course you know that's why i'm saying well hang on but we're not asking the right questions here are we because you, you can answer yes or no um but it depends on the the type of question that you're asking and who that's going yeah. to apply to because you know essentially actually you can have your cake and eat it why, why do we have to be one or the other because there are advantages um, to, to all of these different strategies in the way that, and I like to refer to these things as tools in a toolbox. You, you've got a variety of uh, tools, AKA strategies that we can use for out training and through competition that will allow us to have the best of all scenarios, which will be personalized to the individual and their unique circumstances. And also the, um, you know, the, the, the event and the outcomes that they're looking for, um, which is which is what I wanted to discuss with you, because that's basically what your paper is is showing, is that mm -hmm. you know that maybe maybe uh, maybe we, we are looking at this the wrong way, because there are some interesting benefits to this in 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 groups of athletes that you might not think this would be of benefit to, like strength athletes, for example, or or at least it doesn't it doesn't appear to be detrimental to their performance. Yeah where there might be benefits to other things like body composition, which of course is a, a struggle for some people. So maybe, um, maybe if we uh, start to go back to your study then, and you know, you, you clearly were, were very careful in how you selected your, your uh, studies that you looked at. 
um, and you classified the participants um, because you're being, you know, very relevant about this stuff. What I mean, what what sort of things did you do to sort of, um, you know, ensure that the information that you looked at was appropriate for this this study, and then and then we'll start to talk about what you found from it all. Yeah. So, like. I, I, I think the, there was there was two categorizations that took place and it was kind of going back to the Burke paper from 2015 where she categorized it according to exercise intensity and also training status. So I actually categorized my, my PhD to in a, in a similar fashion. So with the paper impact of ketogenic diets on athletes' current insights, um, we obviously broke people into uh, well-trained, trained and recreationally trained individuals and then looked at it from an endurance capacity standpoint which as I said is time to exhaustion at a set intensity then looked at uh, endurance performance and then looked at other things that have been assessed within the literature uh, primarily uh, strength performance which is kind of only something that's recently been assessed um, and then tried to categorize which is difficult when you're looking at high intensity efforts you're like is is a, is a wingate the same as uh, a critical power test or is it the same as a 30-minute high-intensity test? And you're like, they're, they're not the same. How do you categorize them? So that was a challenge that we had within the paper um, and something that we tried to overcome. So we were like looking at uh, high-intensity efforts less than 30 minutes long and high intensity efforts uh, greater than 30 and less than 60, 60 minutes in duration. Um, so yeah, that was, I suppose, one of the biggest challenges was setting a framework in place and then placing athletes and the actual measures of performance uh, accordingly so. Brilliant. So you've looked at all this information, you looked at these different studies, and we've, we've talked about some background about these studies. Um, but you found some interesting stuff here. So if we if we look at, I mean, the obvious area to talk about first is going to be endurance performance. And we've dipped into this where we've talked about there are differences, of course, between elite and sub-elite and recreational, but also the difference between, say, you know, um, a 10K or a marathon and an ultra marathon. There are differences there. Um, as it relates to ketogenic diets and and their impact on on athletes across that spectrum of endurance performance what were the sort of things then that you found uh, generally speaking we found from an endurance athlete standpoint that there was a maintenance of performance uh, particularly in uh, recreationally trained individuals but when you went into uh, let's say trained or well-trained individuals um, uh, like let's use the Burkett Al paper or the Shaw Al paper, um, who both let's say both both ketogenic groups within those investigations uh, maintained performance, but in the case of the Burkett Al paper, there was a the ketogenic group or let's say against the periodized carbohydrate group and a high carbohydrate group, and um, both of those groups increased their performance across an intensive twenty one day training camp, whereas the ketogenic group. Uh, only let's say maintain performance across that period so that obviously wouldn't be a positive outcome but then when you look at let's say the debate from the other side 
uh, low carbohydrate advocates will be like, oh, but you know, 21 days is is too short. And you're kind of like, okay, you're like, but how much do they need? And then the kind of debate is, oh, they need a number of weeks to months. And I think one of the interesting points that I brought up within the paper is the interesting thing about the Burke et al. paper was they were very well-trained individuals, uh, Olympians, uh, some of them I'm, I'm, I'm almost sure. Um, and they were in a deeper state of nutritional ketosis, as in their resting BHB was greater than that than athletes who had, within cross-sectional studies, been on a ketogenic diet for a number of, number of months. And as well as that, the rates of fat oxidation they had achieved were, were much greater. So for me personally, I'd be like, it's, it's all well and good to say a longer duration is needed to adopt to something. But if you're going to say that, you need to justify it by saying, how is this going to be measured? Is it going to be measured by BHB? Is it going to be measured by fat oxidation? Or is it going to be measured by performance? And if you're measuring performance, you need to do an investigation and then like reassess performance every, let's say, two to four weeks, whatever the case may be. But that's unpractical and unlikely to take place. And then I suppose the, the common trend between the Burke et al. paper and the recent Shaw et al. paper from a research group in New Zealand was when exercise intensity goes above 70% VO2 max, which is where most endurance events will take place, um, there's a decrease in exercise economy. So per litre of oxygen consumed per minute, the group oxidizing more fat are more inefficient than the group who let's say followed a more carbohydrate-based diet for however many weeks prior to post-intervention testing and like if you look at that from a, a practical standpoint um, like a one percent reduction in exercise economy which doesn't sound doesn't sound massive but in the context of a, mar and a, ver a very marathon runner that could be the difference of 60 to 90 seconds across yeah. a two two hour marathon so again is it is it statistically meaningful? Uh, you know, obviously both both those papers found that its economy significantly decreased, which to me would say in the real world it would be demonstrative massively so of decreased performance. Yeah. But again, that 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 wasn't observed within the investigations. So you're, <clears throat> um, I was listening to uh, someone recently, and they were like saying. You need to look at it from a physiological standpoint and then try and apply it as best you can within an athlete context because it's actually it's very difficult to assess performance practically within a lab but also even to reproduce it on uh, on let's say a pre and post intervention testing so there's so many inconsistencies that can take place so I think from a sports nutrition standpoint or from an exercise physiology standpoint you need to look at what's going on on a cellular level or on a muscular level and go okay this this is important this is what we need to give recommendations on and i think that's that's i suppose the biggest area of confusion from uh people who let's say might not come from an exercise physiology background sure yeah and i and, and, and quite clearly there you know that the, this is more relevant the more elite and the more you know, the more, um, you know, ambitious you are to, to win your events, um, this becomes more of a relevant concern, doesn't it? So. Absolutely. And I, and I yeah. think, you know, when, when you're looking at scientific investigations, generally speaking, people who are recruited into them are 
on the recreationally trained to train scale and they might be coming from somewhere where you know they mightn't have been too motivated with their own training and then they enroll in this exciting investigation at a university or an institution they're working with an exercise physiologist for sports nutrition yeah i'd say their adherence to training is going to improve their adherence to whatever diet they adhere to is going to improve so the percentage improvement they might observe is going to be much greater or if they were an elite athlete the percentage decrease they would have observed wouldn't be the case because obviously an elite athlete is focused from the outset whereas within scientific investigations you're recruiting people from a low point and then are you maintaining performance but if you were to put them on a more let's say optimal approach would that performance improve and even within the Burke et al paper she found within very elite athletes performance was maintained but if you look at it versus a carbohydrate-based diet, performance can increase across that 21-day period. Yeah. So, again... The- no, I agree. And a lot of this comes back to the correlation doesn't equal causation scenario, doesn't it? Where, you know, if we, if we bring this into the, into the sort of real world of an anecdote, if someone tries something and they say, do you know what, it worked for me, um, mm-hmm. they will correlate that with, you know, it's a panacea for everyone. And that in itself is where there's a serious issue yeah and uh, speaking of issues and you're saying it worked for me um so i i like this is an interesting point and it's it's something that i think more researchers should be aware of um is like so i I done my study in 2014 2015 and i recruited uh, male endurance athletes and they self-selected into a ketogenic group or a high carb group and at the end of the 12 weeks, for the most part, I was still data collecting. So I lost communication with many of these participants. Um, I was self-employed at the time. Uh, you know, you're, you're very busy. You can't keep looking after participants that were previously enrolled. And it was only, I'd say, in the last six or seven months. So uh, like two to three years later, uh, one of the participants contacted me who was enrolled in the, the ketogenic group. And I was obviously had a good catch up with him because I w- would have built, built a good relationship with him over the, the three month period. And he was like, he was like, I, I just can't get my head around it. He goes, uh, and he kept going back to, I got these amazing results on a ketogenic diet. He goes, I just can't get back to that level of performance. And he goes, and he goes, I've, I've been cutting my carbs down more. I'm increasing my fat more. Why am I losing weight? And like, I think that's where the oversimplified model of, yeah. This is what you need to do, kind of. Yeah, I'm you know, still that, that, eating, that's I'm eating the more calories. <laughs> yeah, you're like, I'm, yeah. I'm not losing weight, and I'm eating more fat. What's wrong? And you're kind of like, <laughs> and like for, for me personally, I, you know, I, I felt awful. Do you know what yeah. I mean? Because yeah. obviously, you know, now nowadays, if I was to re- repeat the thing, I'd be like, okay, I need to absolutely recruit the participants. But at the end of it, sit down, have a discussion about them, where they're going to go in the next five to six months with their nutrition because it, it, it can be quite misleading because they do correlate a result that they once upon a time got. And that's actually, that's a really important point you make. And particularly with endurance athletes who tend to be of a mindset of self-induced torture because they're willing to mm. go out there for hours on end <laughs> and train and exercise and run, swim, bike, or just, you know, go and do their foot race training for hours per day. There's a certain mindset there, which is, you know, different than people who are not willing to invest quite so much of themselves into that 
and likewise you know the the well i mean nutrition is so much so much about what you can expect to get out of nutrition is going to be compliance based it's it's rarely are you going to get you know like like a, a sort of an acute pain killing effect of taking paracetamol or ibuprofen for example you know that doesn't really happen with a diet you've got to do something for a long time if you want to lose weight it's not an overnight thing or an hour or two to get a result it's going to be weeks or months on end mm -hmm. um yeah. so the compliance becomes an issue and as you're rightly saying if it's just you know a life of misery it it, it can it can backfire um that's just because there's there's a you know I've, I've done so many podcasts on this topic where we're dipping out of things that that other people have also talked about which concur with you by the way um well so just just quickly to finish up with endurance then so because undoubtedly there is there is a value to doing this for endurance as i see it in maybe the sub elite this is my interpretation of the sub elites but also in the um ultra endurance particularly in the multi-stage ultra endurance athletes which is an area i work with and i've published in that area myself i, I you know maybe you could just make a comment about that because we don't want to suggest that we're we're you know black and white about this because it isn't yeah um there, there was an interesting paper published only in the last uh couple of weeks by edwards et al which looked at uh, ultra endurance athletes over it was a five or six day period it was a, it was a, in total it was a seven day event but what they found was um irregardless of carbohydrate intake all of the participants enrolled in the investigations ended up in nutritional ketosis um during during the multi-stage event purely because they, they weren't able to replace the amount of energy that they were burning through each day and like there let's say if you look at the that uh, sporting context it's obviously over a long period of time uh, they had to carry their own uh, energy or calories with them um so they're you know, let's it's not like a two or three hour event where they're fueling and performing at high intensity the i suppose relative intensity would probably be around 30 to 40 percent of vo2 max over 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 the couple of days and the summary that edwards et al came to in that was if if nutritional ketosis is inevitable um and the delirious effects that are associated with the initial stages of keto adaptation such as fatigue etc would such endurance athletes be actually better adopting uh, a ketogenic diet prior to uh, su such an event but again for, for me personally who somebody who doesn't work with people in that area it's very difficult for me to look at the science and go that yes that would be a good or a bad idea because yeah. the, there's a lack of experimental evidence in that area unfortunately yeah no absolutely and if we were if we're going to oversimplify and go right okay you know we're going to go right there's one group that are low intensity exercises and then there's a group that are vigorous what we're saying and what the science is suggesting is that the low intensity exercises that might be you know which you could suggest is going to make up the large majority of say the ultra endurance um recreational athletes at least mm -hmm. um you know most definitely could, could go down the low carb ketogenic route yeah. because of course the vast majority of the substrate or the fuel they're using is going to be fat of course mm -hmm. and yeah. if it's vigorous you know uh, there's far too much evidence to suggest 
any other perspective that the more vig- you know vigorous and 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 increasing levels of high intensity exercise you're going far more down the the uh, the carbohydrate route and as i've already pointed out you know unless you're doing this on a flat treadmill or just sitting on an on an exercise bike you're going to have a mixture of both of these in reality so if we were to bring this to um, a study you referenced in your paper, which was uh, Edmonda's paper, who and, I, and I've got um, Edmonda coming on to this podcast in a, in a few episodes time to talk about this in more detail. But um, there is actually a middle ground, which is why I said earlier, you can have your cake and eat it metaphorically mm. and, 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 and in reality. Where, you know, where, where I feel that this is the logical path. That's my bias. Um, what are the sort of the benefits of that you think? And, and more importantly, the, um, you know, what is the actual explanation for that? Um, for, from the moderate out there, was it? Yeah. 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 yeah well, so, or, or, or generally, cause you refer generally as well about this, but yeah. Um, yeah. Like it's, it, it, it's an interesting one because on, on one point with, within the moderate out paper, they're looking at different approaches to competing in Ironman. And one was like a very low carb, high fat approach. And then the other one was, I'd say, a more carbohydrate based approach. Um, both, both clearly work for some athletes. So, you know, if, yeah. if, if you're a camp, go, go right ahead. But I think the, the issue for me is uh, if you're looking at keto versus low carb high fat i don't i i i personally for let's say an ironman event because the kind of literature has stepped away from let's say going on a prolonged key or not the literature but let's say the anecdotal standpoint has stepped away from going on a ketogenic diet for an extended period of time and then going into an endurance event and relying on let's say uh primarily fatty acids and ketone bodies to let's say going on a ketogenic diet or a low carb high and then uh, carbohydrate loading prior to exercise. So I think there is a, a common ground where people are like, okay, finally people are getting, okay, carbohydrates prior to exercise are important, whether I'm on a ketogenic, a low-carb, or a high-carb diet. Um, and then obviously your fuel fueling during is largely dependent on, 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 how, on how you've trained the muscle prior to. Um, if you've gone on a low carb high fat approach, your intra work work, let's say carbohydrates might be less than somebody who's more carbohydrate dependent. But again, does does that translate into performance? It's very difficult to say because you're not looking at it within a performance study. You're comparing how one person reports they feel and perform. But is that person is that person performing optimally? You're like you don't know because they're, they're on one approach. If they're on a, a different approach, would that be better, worse, or indifferent? You, you, you can't really say in a, uh, in a, in a constructive sense. And I think that's the, uh, I suppose the, the, the beauty of science is the, uh, look, looking at the evidence and trying to apply it in the best, best fashion you can. Absolutely. Which is, I mean, it's just so clear. There's no black and white on this because it depends. And that's why I bang on about context all the time because there's so much here. But also this, this and I'll be talking to Edmonda about this a bit more. This, this is why um, there's a value in actually testing to help understand your own situation. You know, what is your current status of, 
substrate utilization. And then the wider point is going to be things like, well, what other factors do we need to consider, such as um, your body composition, your gut's ability to tolerate things like carbohydrates? Because if you have serious problems with carbohydrates um, and even training the gut isn't something that seems to work for you, then maybe you have to go down the the more low carb ketogenic, you know, pathway. There's a lot of circumstances there, but yeah. you don't really know. It's not, it's not a question of what camp are you in. It, it's, you know, I guess it's, it's, it's partly a question of what how, genes how, to how, inherit. How, and <laughs> yeah. How, how best to apply the information to, to myself. Yeah. Um, and like, I think the, the, the thing about reducing your dependence on carbohydrates during exercise is a valid point, particularly if let's say you have gastrointestinal issues but again, the difficulty with that is if you're going on a, an extended low-carb diet and you're not, let's say, periodizing it, let's say having, let's say, moderate or high-carb days, your, your gut is going to be exposed to, car- to carbohydrates. So then if you're, let's say, reintroducing carbohydrates once two days prior to an event, how, how are you going to react to that if you hadn't, let's say, carbohydrate loaded for a couple of weeks or months prior in yeah. preparation? And then... Are you training the gut on your, let's say, low-carb, high-fat approach? How do you train the gut without interrupting your own training? So, yeah, there's... No, it's complicated, which is why you need yeah. to hire somebody like you or me to help help them get it right. Obviously, because it is damn complicated. And 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 again, to you know, yeah, l- deciding an approach, see if it works for you, and then adjust accordingly. Yeah, practice, um, practice, practice. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. Look, I mean, look, that's an angle that we could just bang on for hours and hours and hours. But, you know, I, I think, you know, some part of my mission here is to is to make it clear that it isn't black and white. And uh, there's a great deal of thought that needs to go into this because a lot of people just get into this because they've heard it's the way to go. And then maybe mm-hmm. uh, maybe we can help people think a bit more. But it's not just about endurance. Um, you know, some people are looking at this just as a way of life. Um, but also some studies have been done looking at, at, at strength, um, speed and power athletes. What, I mean, what did you find in that regard? Because that, that's pretty interesting. These are people that wouldn't necessarily think about going down this path, at least not from a, a, a fueling metabolism perspective. Yeah, um, and like that, that was one of the interesting ones. Um, like initially, there was the study done in elite gymnasts, and that, that found that like, uh, things like... Uh, wouldn't call it like max strength. It was more like a, uh, things like uh, squat jumps, uh, counter movement jumps, reverse chin ups, pull ups, etc. The performance of those, which generally speaking would be somewhere in the range of 100 or 60 to 120 seconds, was sustained. But then also uh, max strength, so uh, primarily fueled by the phosphocreatine system, that was maintained in a, in a number of investigations, and that included everything from let's say a one around back squat, one around bench even into some Olympic weightlifting. So the, I suppose the practical implications for me from that will be uh, all our performance of max strength was performed. But what I would be interested in looking at will be uh, if you were, let's say, training for uh, 45 minutes to an hour uh, on strength even longer. Uh, if you were, let's say, keto, which is specific to this paper, or let's say on a more carbohydrate-based diet, does your training performance uh, increase or decrease? And that's not generally something that was was found within the investigations to date. Um, like I, and he, here's an anecdote. So during my own PhD, 
Um, I, I would have been coming from a, a rugby background, but then uh, I suppose implemented a ketogenic diet when I, when I stepped away from rugby to complete my PhD. Um, and I continued with gym performance. And like, I, I, I personally found no detriment to that. Um, and the literature subsequently, which there's been a lot of publications in the last one to two years, uh, really reflects that. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And obviously, there's more that needs to be learned in that regard. But again, this this comes back to the next issue where following something like a ketogenic diet or low carbohydrate diet has other associated benefits that may not be great for directly for performance in terms of of training and adaptations as it relates to substrate utilization but there may be an impact on things like body composition and factors Mm. that 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 are associated to that that might influence that such as appetite regulation yeah uh, satiety and so on which indirectly supports performance uh, one way or the other because of course you know having inappropriate body composition can have pretty drastic impacts on performance particularly on um performance that is influenced by weight from endurance mm-hmm. to um you know uh, uh you know you mentioned gymnasts you know you, you can only imagine the impact of being overweight to a gymnast so mm-hmm. what, what 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 did you find there and what were your thoughts um on those findings uh, from the body composition yeah body point. composition yeah um yes yeah, so there they were uh, one of the more interesting ones so within that we looked at uh, what we wanted to do was look at changes in body composition when protein was matched and only two two investigations actually met uh, the inclusion criteria uh, the initial one was by Webster et al um, and that was a um, a 10 or an 11 week training study depending on which way you look at it so for the for the 10 week study you had uh, they were referred to as resistance trained individuals um, and they went on a, a training program once they had adapted let's say uh, how would you say uh, w- they began training when they were in nutritional ketosis not prior um, and what they found was they experienced uh, Good, good. Let's say body composition results versus the people following the opposite diet. But again, when you're looking at the opposite diet, one thing that I would like to point out about that investigation was the control group was a was a Western diet, so not something that uh, I or um, many people would uh, consider optimal. But the important things were that there was no detriment in strength uh, or uh, bench press performance or back performance um, and I think the interesting thing was for for that investigation um, was that they completed one week of let's say carbohydrate restoration which um, how would you say greatly increased their lean mass scores in that uh, let's say 10 to 11 week period um, and that's something that was quite quite controversial uh, at the time when it came out uh, I don't know what your own thoughts on that were Oh, well, I'll, I'll talk about that another time. <laughs> but I, 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 you know, I, I think on balance of everything that we've looked at and you've looked at on the paper here, I, you know, there's all sorts of interesting stuff um, that comes up. Um, but one area I thought, again, is another potential benefit to, to doing the sort of ketogenic uh, ultra-low-carb approach is potentially 
the impact that ketone bodies might have um, on fueling the brain, but also on in, inflammatory scenarios, um, mm. which is worth you know considering because there might be scenarios where there might be some validity to this. What what, what were your what did you find on that? And what were your thoughts? Um, that was that was actually something I looked at within my my own PhD. Um, mm. So study two looked at everything from blood lipids to inflammatory and oxidative stress markers. And I suppose the the common team within my own study, um, which 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 hasn't been published yet, um, and other let's say investigations within the literature is if you assess inflammation at baseline. And then you assess it, uh, however long the study is, at post-intervention. Generally speaking, there is a large decrease in uh, fat, fat mass or adipose tissue, which is, is going to correlate with a decrease, decreases in, in inflammation. So within my own investigation, uh, we, we found that there was, a, there was a notable, or not notable, but there was decreases in inflammation within the athletes. But again, they, they also experienced significant decreases in, in fat mass across the intervention. Um, so it's it's hard to say. Do uh, does A equal B uh, within within that context? Um, but he, but it, but there are significant reports or, or significant is the wrong word. But there are reports of improved, let's say, recovery um, when when somebody does adopt to a, a low carb uh, ketogenic diet, sure. particularly even with the uh, my. Uh, my supervisor, it's it's an area of his own interest is exogenous ketones, which is a whole different kettle of fish, um, yeah. and they have particularly uh, or potential implication within the within the rec- recovery period uh, of athletes as well. So it's a uh, yeah, well it's that's an a, but altogether a different area. That's another podcast actually. Um, but oh yeah, again a crossover there is again in the translational confusion that people get into is is they they hear about the benefits or the the alleged benefits of exogenous ketones and then they apply that to a ketogenic diet because they sound the same Mm. but they're not yeah (laughs) it's not the same thing yeah they're they're two 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 entirely different area fields of research absolutely Um, yeah that that, that, that's how they should be treated really yeah absolutely yeah Um, well as i said i'm gonna do a whole podcast about that so all right so look we we've talked about or dipped into some of the strengths and weaknesses of ketogenic and low carb diets on certain scenarios, different types of athletes, different types of events. Uh, and, um, you know, I think it's fair to say that, you know, there, that a lot of this could be considered as strategies or tools in a toolbox, as long as you understand the strengths and limitations. And my favorite word now is the relevance of this to who you are and what you're doing and what your outcomes and so on, there may be a place for this, but rather than being sort of a black and white, you know, keto or or low carb. And of course that's an argument in itself is should you be keto? Should you be low carb? Um, Which I don't, I don't want to get too deep into. Um, But how about, and you allude to this in the paper as, as maybe a sweet spot could be rather than just going down one path, at the expense of the body's ability to um, handle, say, carbohydrates appropriately. Mm. You know, the middle ground being um, doing all of these things at the right time at the right place. Do you want to elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah. um, So, like, 
I, I, I suppose to summarize the, the paper, like if you want to maintain endurance uh, performance, if you want to maintain uh, or improve body composition, that it's, it's a good tool. If you want to maintain strength, it's a good tool. But, and I, I think that's more for the recreationally trained individual, individual who, let's say, might want to maintain a lean physique um, without tracking calories. And let's say go for their five or 10k or half marathon runs yeah. at, at their own pace at their own leisure but if if you are somebody who wants to let's say optimize your endurance performance optimize endurance capacity and, and then when necessary be able to let's say tap into as, as you referred to it earlier your fourth and fifth gear to either climb a hill or to sprint away from the the opposition on a bike or on, on the road um don't the, there's a reason the position stand currently is on a periodized approach. And as practitioners, that appears to be currently the most effective way at maintaining all of the variables discussed within this paper um, in, in well-trained or, or elite athletes. So again, it, 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 it goes back to where are you on the scale and what do you want to get out of your training or, or performance? Um, if you want to optimize it, there's definitely merits in varying your carbohydrate intake not only on a day-to-day basis but on a on a on a session-to-session basis and throughout the training week yeah i and i guess the issue there is it's just not as easy so there's more to consider and that's where Mm. you, you if you if you're not pretty seriously clued up on this stuff to the level that we're having this conversation then you need to seek some some professional advice from the appropriate Appropriately yeah, qualified and, and trained people. And, and maybe on that comment, I mean, you know, who, who are the sorts of people then that are likely to have, be more informed on this? Um, like so, some of the previous guests you, you would have had on here, uh, yeah. like Trent Stellingworth is one of my uh, favorite authors, uh, yeah, John Hawley, Louise yeah. Burke, um, a lot of good guys coming out of uh, Liverpool, John Moores in the past couple of years. And I particularly like their I'd say, traffic-like system that they refer to with athletes. Yes, um, I think that I think that really simplifies a sometimes highly complex model, um, and you know, they're I suppose people who, generally speaking, are leading the field within nutrition science, as in like an, an academic setting. But they're also working with uh, professional athletes who are, let's say, playing professional football, uh, playing or competing in the Olympics. So, you know, generally speaking, they they'd be the people I would be going going to as a as a resource uh, for for trying to I suppose translate this uh, yeah. not not only to myself but but to athletes themselves. Yeah, yeah. Well, I I I sort of you know we're we're pretty much at the end of this conversation now, and I I think one one person I can paraphrase who who who's been a previous guest on this podcast is Professor James Morton, where. Mm. On this particular topic, he he would describe this as it's not low carb or high carb, it's smart carb. Um, mm. And uh, and I guess the most recent podcast I've done that probably covers this broader concept of periodization um, pretty well is episode 119 with Mark Harry's on fuel for the work required, who is one of the co-authors of that fuel for the work yeah, yeah. required paper that you referred to. And um, Mark's on my my team at the Institute of Performance Nutrition as well. Oh, nice. Yeah, um, so that's great. But 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 there's a lot of podcasts on this topic, and I'm I'm 
proud to say that this conversation will be a, um, a fantastic addition to that collection of podcasts on this topic. So I really appreciate your time today, Fionn. We've, we've, we've managed to extend this conversation a fair bit longer than we thought we were, which is, seems to be the norm uh, uh, of late. It always blows me away how long we can talk about this stuff. But um, the, paper at ha- the paper in question, which um, it, you know, we've been discussing today, which is the impact of ketogenic diet on athletes, uh, by yourself, Lorna Doyle, Daniel Plews, and Karen Zinn um, is going to be attached to the uh, to the show notes on this for people to refer to. But also, I recommend people delve into the reference list there. There's all sorts of papers there that should be looked at. And I will link the various podcasts that I've done with the various experts that will add to this, this conversation. So um, thank you, Fionn. Um, it's been amazing to have this chat with you. Um, I appreciate I appreciate your time. And before you get locked out of the, uh, the, the room, yeah. you booked out there. <laughs> no, 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 nobody's banged on the door yet, thankfully. Um, um, you know, I, I know that you're not just a, a lecturer and a researcher. You're also in private practice and so on. If people want to follow you and get hold of you, uh, what's the best way of doing that? Yeah. Um, feel free to link my email uh, into the show notes. Um, right. And I think yeah. for, the, for, for the time being, I think uh, Instagram handle is Swaney. And I will have a website launching hopefully in the next uh, three to four weeks called lucidnutritionconsultancy.com. Brilliant. Yeah, um, well, I'll, I'll link to that for sure. I'll, I'll gladly give, awesome. give that a shout. And uh, so thank you there. And um, I, of course, am, am uh, uh, doing lots of podcasts. I've got loads coming up um, this year. Um, it's still only uh, midway through January. I've got a lot of podcasts. I'm really ramping up my efforts uh, on this this year. So some of the things that we've dipped into today uh, like exogenous ketones for example is is going to be the subject of a, a single podcast um you can get access to all of the back catalog um on um on our website at the iopm.com but also the podcast very own website um is we do science.com which is where you'll find all the uh, papers and show notes and so on that link to this and of course, if you're interested in um, developing your expertise as a specialist in sport and exercise nutrition, um, please do take a look at our uh, training and education programs at the Institute of Performance Nutrition, which is at theiopn.com. I am Lauren Brannock and look forward to bringing another episode back to you all very soon. Thank you for listening.